excited to bring you Dr. Daniel Franklin to talk all things language-based learning disabilities. This is an area that I love to discuss to help bring your child and students to the next level. And I'm telling you, Dr. Franklin's gonna bring your thought process, your skills, your insights on language-based learning disabilities to a whole new level for you and your child and your students. Welcome to the Special Education Inner Circle Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Witcher, and Dr. Franklin, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Great to be here. So let's get started with giving everyone just a quick overview of how did you end up at an IEP table? Well, I've been in education, special education, for over 30 years. And frankly, uh, right from the outset, as a very young teacher uh, teaching at a uh, school for children with learning differences, uh, I found myself suddenly sitting at an IEP meeting and frankly, not knowing much and feeling overwhelmed, feeling confused, uh, not feeling prepared. And it's taken me uh, a career to eventually develop a real comfort and understanding. But it also gives me enormous empathy for parents, for teachers who are new to the field, for anyone who's an advocate for children, psychologists, psychiatrists, pediatricians, anyone who's sitting around an IEP ta table, um, there's lots that we can do to advocate on behalf of the children we are there to represent. And uh, eventually, uh, something I got good at, and I know Catherine, you are too, and I know for both of us, it's been quite a quite a journey, really our, our, our lifetime, frankly. But I, I'm excited, as I know you are too, Catherine, to share with everyone, the little things we've learned along the way. And it, it's been a tough journey. I'm not going to kid you. Um, and I, I, I say that all the time. I said, you know, like we talk with a lot of joy and hope. Um, but with that comes a lot of strategies and struggles that we've been through. So I, I'm excited to share some of that. I do want to mention to everyone that as you're listening, that Dr. Franklin has a book out about language-based learning disabilities. So as we start to talk about some of the topics about like, what is this language-based learning disability kind of category that we're talking about? What does it look like? There's much more information available to you wherever you are listening to this, or if you're watching it on YouTube, you can find the links right there. So, um, so let's talk about your, your book for a minute. So like you said, this has been a lifetime journey for me, for you. What was your motivation for putting out this book, for writing this book? Who is it for? It's, it's for parents. It's for parents of children. And frankly, it's for parents of all children, because although the title is uh, Helping Your Child with Language-Based Learning Disabilities, the strategies I offer, frankly, work well with all children. You know the old saying, a rising tide floats all boats. We know what works well for kids with learning and behavioral differences also works well for neurotypical kids too. And so the strategies I offer, frankly, are for all parents of all kids everywhere. And my book really covers a fairly broad age range from, uh, you know, very young toddler up to uh, young adults. And I offer a lot of strategies to support children with dyslexia, with dyscalculia, sort of the math version of dyslexia, or dysgraphia, sort of the writing version of dyslexia. Also ADHD and processing disorders, children who struggle to learn through listening or, or watching visually. Um, 
and a wide range of other learning and behavioral differences. And so my book, uh, Helping Your Child, this, this little book here uh, with language-based learning disabilities was, I wrote almost as if I was writing a personal letter to a parent who has a child who's struggling a little bit at school. And it's filled with all the little lessons I've learned in the 30 plus years I've been a teacher and an educational therapist and an educational consultant and currently the clinical director of my company, Franklin Educational Services. I help parents understand things like um, psychoeducational testing, neuropsychological testing, IEPs, the assessments, how to advocate on behalf of your child in an IEP, um, strategies to support children with slowly emerging reading skills and writing skills. Um, children who are learning to read cannot read to learn. And this is very important because- Yes, let's go there. Let's go there. I was waiting. I was like, yes, come on. Let's talk about that because I get really excited to talk about this. This is how you know we're kind of like nerds about special education and all that. I'm like, I'm really excited about this um, to talk about the difference between learning to read and reading to learn. So a lot of times what happens uh, in, in our case, so as master IP coaches, as parents, as teachers, we're, we see students get to like that third grade level and all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh my goodness, this gap just happened. And I'm explaining to parents, like there's really a shift in the curriculum that happens in elementary school that goes from learning to read to reading to learn. And that we need to acknowledge the difference between those two. Uh, so you tell me from your perspective, what is that different? Like explain what that is, the difference between reading to learn and learning to read. And what are some of the strategies that we need to be aware of when that gap starts to happen? Well, you really hit the nail on the head there, Catherine. You know, um, as kids get older, and we're talking about really bright, capable, motivated kids, but these are kids with slowly emerging written language skills. And that gap actually grows as they get older. So a first grader can't be more than one year below grade level in reading skill. But a bright, motivated sixth or seventh grader can be two or three or four years below reading level relative to their peers. And as that gap grows between their chronological age and their reading skill level, we need to actually provide higher levels of reading support because Catherine, as you pointed out, right around third grade, suddenly we expect kids to learn from reading. But if, if a child is not a skilled reader, they can't learn from reading because they're still learning to read. So we want two separate but parallel tracks. On one track, we want bypass strategies. We want to be uh, uh, reading the material aloud to children or reading it ourselves and explaining what it says and using all sorts of modalities to help kids understand the concepts being taught in science and social studies and English and other classes too. However, we do also want to be providing some reading instruction, but these need to be separate parallel tracks. And you know, Catherine, as we were talking earlier, uh, uh, before we, we started uh, on air here, how there's a similar corollary with writing. While a child is learning to write, they can't write to learn. The example I use frequently when I'm uh, working with teachers is, all of us have sat down to dash off a really quick 30 second email. And 30 minutes later, we're creating a much longer email. And it's a good email. We're really getting into what it is we wanna say and we're, developing our ideas and how we're going to communicate them. And 
30 minutes later, we've generated a great email. And what are we doing? Well, we're using writing to learn and to develop ideas because we're skilled writers and we can. But uh, children with slowly emerging writing skills can't write that way. So again, just like reading, while the child has slowly emerging writing skills, we want to be very actively involved in the writing process. We want to make writing highly collaborative, inter interactive. We want to engage children in this discussion about things that they want to say and how they're going to say them and words they're going to use. And we want to write down things that they say and work very collaboratively. Now, we want to keep all of our notes because when a child is submitting writing, that's been done in this manner, we want to be really transparent with the teacher about how we approach the writing support we offered our child or our student. And indeed, this is a really effective way. It's a, it's a valid, common, and it's actually a very appropriate accommodation for lots of kids with IEPs, which is engage in writing as a collaborative, interactive process. But again, we want to be really transparent with the teacher. We want to keep all of our notes. We want to explain our process. So there's no question about authorship or some one of those other things. That yeah, we're taking data all the time, right? So that's part of this is we're talking about, uh, okay, reading to learn, learning to read, um, learning to write, and then writing to learn. And it's it, like you said, these parallel tracks that we're on and we need to document what we're doing on each of those tracks. And it can be as simple as journaling, taking notes, writing down, what are you doing to support your learner? And that's really important to take these strategies that Dr. Franklin's giving you and make sure that we're applying them and that we're documenting how we're applying them. Now you mentioned something about how things can start to get overwhelming, right? So we're expecting somebody to read to learn and they're still learning how to read or we're expecting somebody to write this really quick you know just write down three sentences when really we can't even get the three sentences out right now because that we're still learning how to formulate those sentences and how to do the motor skills to write we um often see some overwhelm when it comes to executive functioning demands and different things um that that fall into that category so let's we've got kind of our academic side we're talking about reading and writing uh, but we talk a lot about this category of executive functioning and how does that pair up? So we're talking language-based learning, which a lot of people would not think like, okay, and then that falls over to, it spills over into all this executive functioning. Can you go there a little bit in the conversation? Sure. Um, to do well at school, you need a lot of uh, executive functioning strength and capacities, attention, um, the ability to... Uh, stay focused, to shift your attention appropriately. Even things like emotional regulation are considered some of the areas of executive functioning. Organization, time management, planning, um, all of these realms, and <laughs> there are many, many other realms of executive functioning. And if you're not really good at those things, it's really hard to do well at school. Indeed, uh, objective measures of executive functioning skills are better predictors of grades than IQ. Oh, we, say that again. Say that everybody. I, I'm not kidding you. Like, just make a note of where you're at in the podcast right now. If you can't stop and listen, get out your journal if you can. Okay, say that again. Executive functioning skills. Uh, they are objective. Objective measures because we can objectively measure a lot of not all, but a lot of executive functioning capacities are a better predictor of grades at school than IQ. And what's happening is 
for children, these could be really bright, motivated kids. But a lot of those kids, children with ADHD, and we know that ADHD co-occurs with dyslexia at a very high rate, around 20 percent. Uh, it co-occurs with autism at a rate of about 70 percent. And it co-occurs with a lot of other primary um, uh, challenges like dyslexia or specific learning disabilities in the area of reading or ADHD. Um, we know with Down syndrome and with autism, uh, ADHD and executive functioning deficits co-occur. So whenever we're working with, frankly, just about any kid struggling at school, we want to become highly involved in providing executive functioning support. We need to think of ourselves as the time manager, as the planner, as the organizer. Um, why? Because the demand for those very discrete uh, and essential capacities um, are often not developed well enough for children to manage the executive demands of school. So we want, really want to be there. We often describe it as being a, a surrogate prefrontal lobe, the part of the brain that is uh, largely, not exclusively, responsible for executive functioning skills. We as adults have a well-developed uh, prefrontal cortex. And because we're older and more mature, uh, we're able to do those things. We're able to plan and, and uh, manage time and even stay regulated from a, a psychological or emotional standpoint. And we need to provide that level of executive functioning capacity to help children, whether it's our own children or a student or any other, and children, teens, and even young adults, because the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until young adults are in their mid-20s and sometimes a little bit later. Uh, I've, got, I've got teenage girls right now, and um, I can tell you there's a lot of teaching them how to kind of backward chain their thoughts. <laughs> like, what are you trying to achieve? And then how are we going to get there? And how are we going to think through that process? But that being said, so that's me talking about how I I'm helping my teens make decisions that they're not quite equipped to make right now, but they're expected to make right now. And that happens a lot to our students. And that brings me to something else that I would love to chat about is that difference between being a helicopter parent and a helping parent. Because I think we're always negotiating. You're saying like, okay, so let's support the students. Let's, you know, even back to the, the reading and the writing, you're like, okay, you know, there's certain supports we have to give. And then there's executive functioning, there's supports we have to give. And you know what, I'm just going to call it out like it is. There are a lot of general education teachers or other professionals who are not familiar with special education or supporting a student with a disability and they come up with things like well that's cheating or that parent is doing the homework for them and uh, you know we're constantly trying to say like no what we're doing is we're trying to give them equal access by supporting them in what they need so let's talk to that parent that maybe has been called the helicopter parent when she feels like or he feels like i've just been helping but maybe i am so can you give some examples of what a helicopter versus a helping parent looks like? Sure, Catherine, and you and I have both been in this situation many times when we're helping a parent. Uh, and as you and I both know, the difference between a helicopter parent and a helpful parent is this. A helicopter parent provides help that is not needed. A helpful parent provides help that is needed. And children with language-based learning disabilities like dyslexia and ADHD and related issues need a lot of help. So let's not pathologize the parent who's providing a lot of help 
because our child needs it. And I'll tell you, if you want to make someone dependent for the rest of their lives, do this. Withhold the help they need when they need it. You, that is a, a, a sure uh, method of making someone dependent for the rest of their lives. Because what will they learn when we withhold the help they need? Then when the chips are down and I'm struggling, the people who I love the most walked away from me and gave up on me. They didn't help me when I needed their help. Oh, that just and, killed me. Like it, like I, like that just hit hard. Like I, I'm thinking about that kid that's sitting in the classroom. Like I, I just need help. And, and somebody's saying, just try harder. And, and then they really like, nobody's here to help or, you know, they're at home and, and they want help. And maybe that parent has been given advice of like, don't do it for them. But, but the parent knows in their gut, their child can't do it, but they're trying to follow the advice of a professional. And, and that just, I hear this loud and clear, teachers and parents, what he's saying is if you want a child to be dependent, as in like, just not fostering that independence by learning the skill, it, that's what, oh my goodness. That, that's what we're doing. That's so much of what, well, we're just trying to push them and, and make them try harder. That strategy doesn't work. It doesn't work. And that's why we really need to encourage parents to really be highly involved in a healthy, positive way that when a child is struggling at home, make an effort to understand what the challenge is. And let's think about um, how can we be helpful um, I've always, and if I can go on a little bit of a tangent here, because it's one of my things I talk go about, I've, I've never been a fan of the concept of tough love. Here's why. Tough love is neither. It's not tough because this is what tough is. It's trying really hard. It's making a huge effort to understand what the problem is and working on a solution. So it's not tough and it's not love because love is unconditional. And all children deserve unconditional love because they need it. And so let's this we need to abolish this construct of tough love because it's neither. It's not tough and it's not love. And we also need to not pathologize a child's need for help. What we have to do, we children are consistently inconsistent. We know that just because they could do something one day or even one hour ago, doesn't mean they can do it now. Why? Because they don't have enough prefrontal cortex development to maintain a consistent level of effort or concentration or emotional regulation. As adults, we can. We know that the older we got, the more we could keep ourselves regulated, even when we didn't want to be regulated, when we really wanted to growl and bark at somebody, we didn't because we had that capacity. We have, the, we have the ability to do the hard thing. Yes, I would rather get up and run around and go outside and do something fun, but I need to finish this report, so I will. We can do that as adults because our brains have developed enough that we can inhibit certain kinds of feelings and emotions and, and so forth. Children can and we have I love that you said that. I love, I'm thinking again about all the parents and teachers that take the data, traditional data, like 
all the tally marks of like, you know, and all the tracking of did it independent, did it with hand over hand held, did it with verbal prompts. And the data is supposed to be inconsistent. Like I always tell people, if you see a clean line from point A to point B with a beautiful trajectory with no hills and valleys, that data quite honestly is probably false because a child is supposed to be up and down. And that doesn't mean that they haven't done it before. It means that they can't do it on that day. And that's, that's okay. We're getting there. Absolutely. No, we have to get really comfortable with variation and, and inconsistencies and even our own, frankly, you know, we have to be patient with ourselves on the day when it's hard to provide the help we might need to provide. We do know this, that children who have safe, secure connections attached, securely attached to their parents prevail. They do well, they're resilient. Unfortunately, children who do not have strong, healthy relationships with their parents don't do well. They tend to be less resilient. They tend to be less likely to prevail. We must always prioritize the quality of our relationships with children above all other considerations. A child who has healthy, positive relationship with his or her parent is invariably going to prevail be resilient and do well. We even know that children with who are securely attached, children who have safe, secure connections to their parents have better executive functioning skills. It's a sure way to promote executive functioning skills. Focus on the quality of your relationship with your child or your student. Teachers can do this too. And, say, and teachers, you can do that too. We're talking about caregivers. We're talking about, you know, a lot of our households are not traditional right now in, in the way where there's two parents in the home and there's um, all the stability that they're wanted, you know, that we wanted there to be, especially over the past year with everything that has happened. Um, there is a big shift in the education community, looking at more of that social emotional learning and that it's about consistency and it's about knowing that the child is not alone and working towards that consistency. And I love that you brought that up because, you know, here we started out with this, you know, specific data and these, you know, this is how much um, a, la a language based learning disability can affect your child in reading and writing. And then we talk about executive functioning and then we say relationships, too, because it really does go everywhere. I, I do want to make sure that we talk about we. We touched on this again before we hit record. Sometimes we have some of the best conversations before we hit record. So I want to, I have a little note here to make sure. You know, we're talking about this consistency and success that there's ups and downs, there's peaks and valleys, there's learning to, to read and, and reading to learn and all of these things. And we talked about data and you and I have something in common. We have kind of a favorite way to take data. So I'm going to let you talk about one of the best ways that you like to take data. <laughs> well, I know it's your favorite way too, Catherine, so we can share in this conversation with your listeners. Um, when a child is learning differently, is different, behaves differently, we can't fall back on traditional sources of information collecting like test scores and grades. What we can use is what's called a portfolio approach. And whether I'm working with a child personally myself as a teacher or an educational therapist or a tutor, or whether I'm working with other educators working with a child, I collect every piece of paperwork 
even within and keep it in chronological order, even within the context of each lesson. So as I'm coaching at therapists and tutors and teachers who are working with children, when you sit down and start working with a child, keep every sheet of paper you use with that child and every note and keep them in chronological order. I number them, <laughs> page one, page two. And the reason is this, um, as we work with children and we take notes and we have them generate work for us in the context of our lessons, and when we begin to look at that work over the course of several weeks or several months or the course of a year, and by the end of a year, we should have a big, thick stack of paperwork from the beginning of the year to the end. And as we go through that stack of work, we can look at where we started, where we got, and more importantly, where we need to go. That's why after a few weeks or a month or two, let's look really carefully at where we started, where we got, and let's use our notes and let's use our observations to guide the next few weeks or couple of months in terms of our goals. It's the only way we can really authentically assess. We can only authentically um, come up with a, a plan that's realistic because we need to keep the goals and objectives consistent with the rate of progress. And it, this is the, the, for my money, the best way to measure progress and to create goals for future uh, learning objectives. Yeah, I always say we're overcomplicating this concept of data. Data is really just written documentation of where we were and where we're going and, and what happened in between. And, and it's just documentation. That's all that it is. Now, there's, of course, a time and a place and some numbers can be great when it comes to standardizing some things, but we need to put that all into context as in those tests, whether it's a teacher-made test or it's a standardized test from a big corporation, we're not built for our different learners. Everything is different uh, when it comes to how it's delivered or how the, the child is, you know, what environment they're in or what their, where their strengths and weaknesses are or how they were doing that day. There's so many variables that go into that. I want to encourage everyone to make sure that if you're just like, yes, okay, I need some more. I need more strategies. And how do I get this through to the IEP team? And, and how do I get my child help? And how do I know if this is really what's going on with my child? I'm going to have all the links for Dr. Franklin, who has uh, so many resources and he does have his own, um, do we call it educational consulting company, educational therapy. You do a lot of different things <laughs> within your, your clinic that you're running um, on there. So we'll have the, the, the links there. You also have his book to get started. And I'm excited to share with you that Dr. Franklin's going to continue this conversation at the whole next level inside of our special education inner circle members area. So if you're not already a member, you'll want to go over to specialedinnercircle.com, become a member, get that VIP treatment behind the scenes in-depth conversation. So uh, Dr. Franklin, I would love for you to share one last word of hope and encouragement for our parents and our IEP teams who are going to take a breath over the summer after probably the most chaotic year that we've pretty much ever seen in education. And they're going to get ready to go to this back to school season. What are some words of uh, wisdom for them that you have? Well, 
Children who feel safe and secure in their relationships with their parents do well in life. They have good lives and they have happy lives. Parents who provide the help their children need when they need it and, and do not pathologize the need for help are providing the, the type of help that is truly needed. And third, even though children with learning and behavioral differences often start off slowly, as they get older, they begin to catch up. And even though in the early years that gap grows, as they get older, it begins to close. And long as we stay hopeful, and long as we stay helpful, and as long as we stay connected, and long as we always prioritize the quality of our relationship with the children and the students around us in time, time is your ally, not your enemy, in time, these children will excel. They will find their passion. They will find the thing that they want to do and they will pursue it and they will excel at that thing. It could be in any realm. It could be in the arts. It could be in the academics. But we just need to stay positive and hopeful. And this is how we can help all young people, young people of any age, teens, children, teens, young adults, really thrive and excel and do well in life. I love those words. I'm going to I'm going to take those words from myself too as a reminder over the summer and as we go into this next uh just education season that we're going to see across our country. So again, Dr. Franklin, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. It's been wonderful being with you.